Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 157. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by popoptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack and Little Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One, by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a down on his songwriter with an unlikely name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family savings on a multi-seat tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. It changed the fortune for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. You can now order my latest book, The TTV Scrapbook, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Bear Manor Media. If you'd like signed copies of this or any of my books, please email me at funideas.mark at gmail.com for further information on how to order directly from me via PayPal. I now have three super articles to write for Back Issue, Super Richie, Super Dagwood, and Super Fan. My Pac-Man book is the next to be coming out, and I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. 
Warren Kremer is due out eventually, as is my next Disney book. On today's show, we have the original basis for Paul Revere and the Raiders. Here he is, Phil Fang Volk. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another Fun Ideas podcast. And today I have a special guest brought to us courtesy of the great Charles F. Rosney, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. This is Phil Fang Volk. Yeah, <laughs> and there's he showing. And the there's fangs. the fangs right there. Yeah, <laughs> I still got them. They're the real deal. It's <laughs> <That's> very good. <laughs> they're, they're not fake. <laughs> not a denture fang. That's good. <laughs> but, these, but these are fake. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right. Uh, what, what 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 rating does this show have? <laughs> <laughs> no rating at all. Okay. <laughs> There's no class. There's yeah. No... <laughs> okay. Well, we want right. to have some fun with it. We want to keep it light. All right. Um. So obviously, let's get the inevitable out of the way. I mean, if you don't know who this man is, he was in Paul Revere and the Raiders during their '65 to '67 heyday. And he's pictured here on the album, if I'm looking correctly. Yeah, right the guy there. with the shorter, the shorter black boots. Yeah, yes. And, uh, and Smitty, Smitty has no shoes on. <laughs> and Harpo has his United Airlines red slippers. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And the reason we did that is uh-huh. because they said, oh, we're just going to shoot from the waist up. Oh. So, so, so when we showed up and they saw the pictures, it looked like something like some kind of a conspiracy theory that paul is dead you know <laughs> i said see paul he has short boots uh uh smitty has no shoes oh smitty's gonna die <laughs> uh, yeah I, I you know i never looked at the cover that closely until right before we we're doing the show and i go how come they don't all have boots what's going on here <laughs> you, know? you know that everybody thought that was totally unusual yeah. and they thought well there's a message here there's some kind of hidden message with that <laughs> but we all thought like the photographer said we just want it from the waist up yeah. so but but go ahead and wear your tights at least you anyway <laughs> tights yeah. so mark yeah the white tights no no you know those were not just one pair of white tights those were two pair and all they were was white nylons hmm. and we had to pull them up one pair and then pull up another pair so they were thick enough to look like white tights. I mean, this was before spandex and everything. <laughs> since, we're, since we're asking about the uniforms here, or talk about the uniforms, I mean, I'm familiar of, you know, I, I was born in 66. So while you were making all these hits, I was a wee little babe. So that's where I'm at. Well, um, I tell you, 66 was a zenith year for us. <laughs> zenith. It was huge. So it was only in retrospect that I go, wow. These bands actually dressed up and did all sorts of things that bands later on didn't do. They kind of barely dress nicely at all in the yeah. 70s and 80s. They, so they, they, they dress like a bunch of bums. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I was trying to think we, of. So, we were in the entertainment field, and we put on a show. Mm-hmm. And just like the Temptations, who were dressed really nice, and they did steps together, Paul Revere and the Raiders was one of the few bands that could actually play hardcore rock and roll and do some really complicated steps mm-hmm. and the people loved it and when we walked off stage after a two-hour set our clothes were soaking wet <laughs> we were called the hardest working uh, the hardest working band in showbiz now when you joined in 1965 it the group had been around for a few years in fact you saw them play and became friendly with them what was the band like then 
And did they wear the uniforms then, or did they just have the name Paul Revere yeah. and the Raiders? I can straighten this out for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Revere and the Raiders were a really hot dance band mm-hmm. in Nampa, Idaho. Mm. And, and Boise, Nampa, Caldwell. And they played dances. And my older brothers and sisters would go to their shows or dances. It was only dances, you know, like at the, uh, the National Guard armories and the IOOF halls, any place that's big enough to hold 2,000 kids. Mm-hmm. And each kid, each kid would pay a dollar and get in, and Paul Revere and the Raiders would entertain them for four hours. That's why we got so wet. <laughs> okay. We, we worked that hard for four hours. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, when, when I joined Paul Revere and the Raiders, I was at college at the University of Colorado studying classical music and i get a call from my great buddy drake who i who i taught how to play guitar by the way <laughs> he, he ended up being uh, in the raiders in 1963 and i didn't join until 1965 but the old bass player mike holiday was having some mental issues because of his girlfriend passing away and he, he just wasn't together anymore and paul's paul knew he had to make a change and Mike was a great guy, but I, I feel bad that he went through that tragedy. But, but tr- Drake talked to Paul, said, Paul, if you get Phil in the band, we can dance and do choreography and do stuff the band has never seen before because we're both great dancers. Mm-hmm. And so Paul called me at the University of Colorado, and I, my hair was real short, probably like this. And, um, and I, he offered me a gig. And I'd been, a, I'd been at the University of Colorado for a year and a half, mm-hmm. and I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to quit school and, and join the circus, <laughs> so to speak. No, join Paul Revere and the Raiders. So I met them right here in Vegas. Mm-hmm. They were playing a little gig at a club, a dance club, called the Pussycat Agogo. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, Paul Revere was just a dance band. Right. And... Uh, the reason I got so excited about this band is that when I was still in high school, Paul Revere and the Raiders were the, were the stars of our annual uh, variety show at Nampa High School. I was only like 15. Drake was barely 15. Mm-hmm. And we went to see Paul Revere and the Raiders. They closed the show, and they did it like maybe 30 minutes mm-hmm. in, the, in the Nampa High School variety show. And we, we went nuts. We thought, oh, God, if we could only be in a band like that, wouldn't that be great? And so I joined a band in Boise called the Chancellors, and I was in that band for a couple of years. And, and, and Drake and I formed a little group called the Sir Winston's Trio, which played a little lounge in Boise. It was just me, Drake, and a keyboard player, and we, we traded off on bass. That's how much bass experience I had. I would play guitar. He would play bass, and then he would play bass, and I would play guitar. Sir Winston's trio. But we managed to get on a a daytime TV show that one of the big disc jockeys in the Boise area was the host of. And and they would always bring on an act to do do a performance. And Sir Winston's trio was on that show. And we we did a couple songs, and boom, there it was. Okay, great. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sir Winston's trio. See you later. <laughs> well, the next day, Drake and I are walking in the downtown Boise, Idaho, and we come across a window with a sign in it, and there's a picture of Paul Revere and the Raiders. Hmm. And this is playing live tonight. 
we're saying, what the heck is this joint? And we look up at the sign, it's called the Crazy Horse. <laughs> this happened to be a teenage nightclub that Paul Revere built to, to you know, uh, woo the teenagers in to his nightclub. No alcohol. Wow. No alcohol. <laughs> so we go and we watch Paul Revere and the Raiders perform in this little club. And, of course, we were thrilled and we were clapping and yelling through every song. And But, unfortunately, it was not a very big audience. Hmm. And Paul Revere was very, very depressed about this. So we stayed at the club after his gig and talked with him, me and Drake and Paul. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that Paul Revere said to us, he says, you know, guys, I saw you yesterday on that TV show with Sir Winston's trio, and you guys are good. I like you. You got a good groove. And he says, the only problem is you don't have a drummer. If you had a drummer, you could play my club regularly. We said, really? Wow. Drake and I looked at each other and went, man, this is happening. Uh, and then we said, wait, we don't have a drummer. And then we asked Paul, hey, is it all right if we borrow Smitty for the first week? <laughs> Smitty was Paul Revere's drummer. Right. Now, the thing that's so providential about that, you got Smitty, you got Fang, and you got Drake. Those are the three Raiders that eventually left the Raiders in 67 to form another group called Brotherhood. Right. And that was a big breakup of the original band. But there we were in 1963 playing together as a rock band, Drake, Fang, and Smitty, and the keyboard player. But there it was, the, the original Brotherhood, who was not yet Brotherhood, you know. Mm-hmm. We weren't all, we, in fact, we weren't all Raiders yet. Right. Drake, Drake <laughs> wasn't a Raider. I wasn't a Raider, just Smitty. Right. So anyway, we played the club. Uh, the rest of that summer of 63, we used Smitty for the first week, and then we found our own drummer and just kicked butt all summer long. We brought the kids in. Paul knew we would attract kids because we were uh, uh, good. We were popular with the kids in Boise. Uh, in fact, uh, we were even more popular than Sir Winston's trio because we at, now we were a quartet with four guys. We couldn't call ourselves a trio. Right. <laughs> so, guess, so guess what we called ourselves? Take a wild guess. Oh, geez, I don't even know. Go ahead. Try Sir, another one. Sir Winston's Quartet. How about that? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. We were called, believe it or not, the Surfers. Ooh. <laughs> the Surfers? Where are you coming off with that name? Well, we, we decided to wear uh, tennis shoes, uh, cut off <laughs> Levi's, Hawaiian shirts, and go a whole different image and call ourselves the surfers. And the funny part about it, we didn't play any surf music. Mm. Not not one tune, <laughs> not one tune by Jan and Dean, not one tune by the Beach Boys. We played absolutely no surf music. Wow. We just played rock and roll, raunchy rock and R and B and soul. And and the kids went nuts. In fact, we got so popular in that one summer, just playing at Paul Revere's Club that we were asked to play at the Miramar Ballroom, which was a headliners, kind of a, a big ballroom in Boise, Miramar, mm-hmm. uh, which holds, you know, like thousands of people. And we packed the place out, the surfers, in 1963. And so we had a blast. But then came the time where I had to leave for Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that summer, Paul Revere told Drake, 
said, Drake, I'm going to fire my guitar player. I'd like to audition you. I love your playing. You got, you got a great groove, a great pocket. You're fantastic. He's only 16 years old. So Drake played with him for a couple hours and showed him all his licks and his chops. Paul loved it. He didn't make a decision that night, though. But the next day, he goes knocking, goes knocking on Drake's door, and his mother answers, and she says, hello, can I help you? And, and, and he says, I'm Paul Revere. Oh, nice to meet you. Drake has been telling me all about you. Well, he's got to go on the road today. We're leaving today, and I'm hiring him. It's a guitar player. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Paul, so Paul says, where is he? And, and, and she said, oh, he's still in bed. He played guitar all night long, practicing. I said, well, can you take me to his bedroom? So she walks him to the bedroom, and there Drake is on, on his bed with a guitar over his chest. You know? Wow. <laughs> and, and so he shakes, he shakes him. He says, hey, kid. Hey, kid. Wake up. Hey, kid. That's Drake's nickname, Drake the Kid Levin. That's how he got the name. Wow. <laughs> uh, and so he wakes him. I said, hey, pack up, Drake. We're leaving. We're leaving. We're going on the road. You're my new guitar player, 16 years old. Wow. So he never finished high school. So Paul wow. took him out of high school, but the mother was thrilled because Drake <laughs> was only the Drake was the only breadwinner in that house, you know, because wow. he was came from a broken home, divorced and stuff. <laughs> so anyway... His mom was thrilled. Drake was thrilled. So he went on the road with Paul for two weeks at the end of August of 1963. Hmm. And he came back just in time to say goodbye to me as I caught the midnight train out of Boise, Idaho to, to go to Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> so there it was, me and Drake. I taught this guy how to play guitar. Now he's playing with the most famous band in the area. He got the gig that I wanted, you know, and uh, but I was happy for him. And he couldn't stop telling me all the stories of what happened on the road. And of course, you know, there's some great stories. Yeah. Par parties after the after the concert hotels. You know what? A lot of fans, a lot of girls. <laughs> so he wanted to tell me all that. So there I was. And all of a sudden we hear the uh, the conductor say, all aboard. I said, Drake, this is it. I'm leaving. We're going we're gonna to separate. But I'm so glad you got the gig. So we said goodbye. I got into the train. I sat it right next to the window, and I could see him down standing on the platform. And this, this depot in Boise is above the city. It's a very scenic. It's got a huge clock tower, kind of a, uh, kind of a Adobe uh, Santa Fe kind of a look. And as you look down Capitol Boulevard, you see way down there, the big capital looks just like the capital at, in Washington, D.C., you know, that same shape. Yep. Beautiful. I mean, Boise is a beautiful city. So the train starts, starts chugging away, and Drake is walking alongside the window, <laughs> and we're waving and, you know, giving thumbs up and smiling. Pretty soon, the train starts picking up speed, right. and Drake starts running. Inside <laughs> the train and man then it picks up speed and he's running and we're waving and uh, pretty soon i'm losing him because he's falling behind because the train is picking up momentum and then boom we go into deep darkness because we go over a big bridge no lights nothing just into darkness because it was the midnight train i look back and drake is gone couldn't <laughs> see him anymore and i thought god this chapter of my life is closed <laughs> it was just such a sudden change 
of everything in my life. My parents were living in, in Europe, so I, they weren't there to see me off. You know, Drake was the only person there to see me off. And uh, I was happy for him, but I was kind of, oh, I don't know what that feeling is in your chest when you just feel sorrow, you feel sentimentality, you feel a little excitement. It's kind of a, a, a mix, you know, kind of a, what's the word for that? Where mixed feelings? Is that it? Can be. Uh, kind of excitement here. Melancholy. <laughs> melancholy. Some, yeah. some sadness here. Uh-huh. Some excitement here. And when you mix them all together, the basic feeling is fear. <laughs> fear. Where am I going? I'm on the train. I'm on the train going to Colorado to learn how to be a, a school teacher in music. Because that was my major in music. And I, I thought, dang, is that going to work out? <laughs> and of course it didn't work out, you know, because I, I, I studied classical music. I loved it. Mm-hmm. We had, I played cello for a while. I played violin wow. for a while. Wow. I studied singing opera because <laughs> that was my major vocal music major mm-hmm. and also ed- music education. Mm-hmm. And of course my ears were probably better than any other musician that was in that school because as a rock musician, we learned the songs by listening to the chords, and we could identify the chord progressions. Mm-hmm. So in one of my uh, classes in college, ear training and sight singing, the, the professor would get at a piano, and here's a, here's a class full of 100 kids. He says, now what progression is this? John, 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 John. And I raise my hand, C, A minor, F, G. And the guy says, yes, that's correct. And the kids would look <laughs> at me. How, how, how do you know that? And I said, well, I'm a rock and roller. <laughs> we, we, have to, we have to learn all the songs by ear. And that's why my ears are trained. And so I did very good in that class. And I did okay in the other classes, learning all the theory. And I can write music and I can, you know, play all different instruments and stuff. So it was a good experience. But I didn't want to be a music teacher. Mm-hmm. And so in 1965... It was my uh, sophomore year, my second year, first semester. Drake calls me and says, Phil, I've talked Paul into hiring you. Mm. I said, what? Yeah, he's going to let Michael go. It's, Mike's having too many mental problems uh, because of his loss. And I said, oh, really? He says, yeah. I said, he said, have you been playing any bass? <laughs> I, I said, No. <laughs> I would just, I have a little, I have a little, <laughs> I have a fraternity band. Oh yeah. Believe it or not. I that did play, I played Santa bass in a folk group. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like the serendipity singers or whatever they call I'm not sure what our name was. Serendipity singers. Something like that. It was, it was a folk band with about 12 people, girls and guys, you know? And, uh, and I, I was playing uh, rock and roll dates at fraternity parties hmm. as a singer and, a uh, uh, rhythm guitar player, and I'd scream my lungs out on the weekend. Then I go to my first vocal class at the at the music school the next day on Monday, and my professor says, "Phil, what happened to your voice?" <laughs> I said, "Well, well, I was singing some rock and roll <laughs> on the weekend," <laughs> and he says, "Well, Phil, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to train you to learn how to <laughs> sing right." So your voice doesn't get ruined. We're going to teach you breathing and placement and everything. I said, cool, dude. Cool. Very cool. <laughs> so that's the way college went. 
and uh, uh, in 1965, I, I left college, much to the chagrin of my parents who were in Europe. Remember, they were living there. Right. So I didn't contact them. I just wrote them a letter and said, "Hey, mom and dad, I left. I left college." Now they wanted me to stay in college. They wanted me to get a degree, and that was one of the big things that my dad wanted because he never got to go to college. You know, mm. and neither did my mom. And so uh, they didn't get the letter for three weeks later, and they immediately <laughs> called the dean of music yeah. at, at the University of Colorado, and uh, they said, "This is Mr. and Mrs. Volk. Our son is Philip Volk." And he's in your music school, and he just quit school, and, and he went to join a rock band. Why didn't you keep him there? And they said, well, he's, you know, he's, he's grown up. You know, he, he's over 18, yeah. and he can make those decisions, and we have, we have no way to keep him here. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to leave. He can leave. And so they were depressed until, until Raiders got really famous. Yeah. Then once the Raiders got national, oh. <laughs> well, maybe that wasn't such a bad idea. <laughs> now, now, like I said, I know I've been, I know I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to well, take a break. Well, well, you know, the question I had, you know, and you, you know, which that's another question I had, so you answered that one. So, but um, when before you joined, and when you just saw them as a performing band, did they wear all the outfits and do no. everything? Okay. And what type of music did they play? Just old rock and roll or a little of everything or boogie woogie piano. Okay. Okay. Because... Paul Revere was the star of the show on his boogie woogie piano. Okay. And he would stand, he didn't sit at the piano. He'd stood, he stood and he had a long blonde pompadour that would flop, oh. <laughs> flop as he played. And he looked so cool. And Mark Lindsay was a sax player. So he didn't sing. So, well, he did one or two songs in okay. a set. Okay. But but the main thing was listening to Paul. So Paul got a record deal with Gardena Records as a boogie woogie piano player. Okay. And his first hit record was Like Long Hair. Okay. Which was Rock Monanoff's Rock Monanoff's Prelude and C Sharp Minor. Okay. See, I don't have that first album. Everything has goes, on Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Okay. And then he goes do da 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 And this was swing music okay. we could jitterbug to. Yeah. So the most popular dance song was Like Long Hair. That was the name of the album, but also the name of the hit. Okay. Like long hair, and everybody loved his boogie woogie piano playing. Okay. Thanks. And then did they dress up in the outfits like on that uh, Greatest Hits album, or were they just uh, in suits or something at that point? What Greatest Hits? You know, the were you were they dressing up like you guys oh, did? That's early on. Yeah, that's but way uh, after the fact, no. Right. When, so, when, did they dress in suits? What? How did they appear on stage? I mean, uh, well, they or, had you know those those collarless suits that the Beatles wore, oh, like the Beatles. Okay. They wore those. Okay. Nehru jackets okay. and stuff like that. And then one day, um, Mark and was it Smitty or Mark and Paul were walking down the street and they came to a, a, a costume store okay. and they saw these, these jackets, these revolutionary jackets. Oh. And they were doing a special gig. I don't know if it was a Halloween gig or something that costumes would be appropriate, mm -hmm. right? And Paul and Mark said, why don't we rent those tonight and put them on for this Halloween gig or whatever the gig was. Right. It was something where costumes would make sense. Yeah. They got the three-cornered hats. They got and everybody wore the Raider outfits. Mm -hmm. 
And they did the gig that night, and the crowd went crazy. The crowd not only loved the music, but they loved the showmanship. And for some reason, wearing the outfits made the band even crazier. Wow, it, made, it made them want to ad-lib more, and it made them looser, and it made them funnier, and it just gave them license to be wild. Mm-hmm. So that's why they had their reputation of, of being the most wild show band in the Northwest. And so the, the outfits worked so good, they decided to keep them, and they, they, they had uh, someone make some uh, suits for them, some uh, outfits, some jackets, mm-hmm. three-cornered hats, and, they, and it stuck. Now, how many suits did you have when you were in the group? I mean, did you just have the one and it got soaked, or did you have more? Oh no, no, ones? we 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 had uh, <laughs> we we all had about three or four. Oh, okay, I was because on a, on on a dance gig after we played after for ninety Finn minutes, going, oh. we, yeah, we have to go we have to go and get another set of dry outfits on right on, on the break at the dance hall, you okay. know, and so uh, yeah, we all had extra extra suits. Mm-hmm. But the first gig, the first time I ever stood on stage with Paul Revere and the Raiders was in uh, Las Vegas here when I was hired, but I wasn't in the band yet. I guess I had to do a little audition. And so uh, I, I didn't, I didn't know that when I quit college, but I guess Paul wanted to see me play mm-hmm. bass and dance with Drake. Cause Drake told Paul, if you hire Phil, we're going to do a lot more choreography because we're both good dancers. We're about the same height and we know how to move. Because we were, we were great dancers, both of us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we would teach each other different dance steps over the years when we were in school. And we were, we were popular at the dances because we were the ones who were out on the dance floor. You know how girls like to dance with girls because none of the guys want to get out there because they're, they're too <laughs> yeah, embarrassed. Yeah. Drake and I would go out there proud of what we could do. Yeah. And we would show off and dance, you know, light, light the place up. So anyway... Uh, I, I get down to Vegas, the Pussycat Go-Go, mm-hmm. and they're playing on the main stage. And there's another stage above the bar, a little smaller stage for the relief band. Mm. Well, guess who the relief band was? Hmm. It, was a, it was a group called The Enemies. Okay. That's your big clue. Guess who the lead singer was? <laughs> hmm. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Oh, the guy from the Three Dog Night. Yeah, uh, oh, wow. Corey um, Corey Wells. Yeah, yeah. And and Paul Revere loved his voice so much mm-hmm. that he wanted to hire him, but Mark was already the lead singer, and I guess he didn't play an instrument, so he couldn't hire him just as a singer, mm-hmm. right? But he thought that guy that guy's great, and eventually, of course, uh, he got into Three Dog Night, and they became you know legendary. Right. Right. So anyway, uh, Paul wants me to come on stage. I was there the whole week while I had that gig there at the in Las Vegas. Finally, after about three days of watching him every night, uh, Paul says, hey, Phil, I want you to come on stage and do a set with us. I want to see you move with Drake. I want to hear you play. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of nervous. Drake and I rehearsed every day. I played that bass. And, uh, you know, I was rusty because I hadn't played much bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's really funny, though, is the only outfit I could wear was Mike Holiday. <laughs> now, Mike Holiday was 6'3", much bigger guy. So when I put the coat on, it just hung on me. It just, <laughs> and the only hat was his hat. So every time I put the hat on, if I bounced so much, the hat came down and covered my eyes. <laughs> so I had to keep pushing it up. 
And I didn't have the black uh, tight pants, so Roger Hart, our manager, had a pair of black tight pants, you know, peggers, mm-hmm. uh, the narrow narrow legs. And so, and he had, I, I used his beetle boots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was decked out as a Raider. I get on stage, and sure enough, Drake and I kick ass. Mm-hmm. We dance, we play. I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't hitting all the notes right. But I was I was playing my heart out, the best of my ability. But the thing that saved me is I smiled. (laughs) 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 And Mark Lizzie, Mark Lizzie, I don't think he's going to work out, Paul. I don't think he's going to work out. And Paul says, "Look at that smile. (laughs) Look at those two guys dancing. That works." And so he believed in me and Drake. And that I got, I gained his vote of confidence by getting him there and doing the best I could with my smile and my entertainment, right. my personality, and Drake and I moving together. He loved it. Right. Mark wasn't a big fan at first, but eventually, guy, it took him eight months to come around. Can you believe oh, wow. that? Wow. And, <laughs> and you know what it was? It was a gig we had in Oakland, California, hmm. at a completely black nightclub in the black neighborhood. Hmm. And we knew that we had to kick ass at that club we 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 couldn't be just a bunch of white boys playing rock and roll we had to be soulful and mark you know had a very soulful voice he sounded like a black singer Mm -hmm. and he played the sax and we we did a lot of r&b anyway in our dances so we got on stage and we just blew it away Mm -hmm. and the crowd all black Mm. loved it they came they got on their feet (laughs) right so finally mark comes up to me and says he had a, he had a bucket of water here. He says Phil, you were great tonight. Welcome to the Raiders. Uh, now we're going to baptize you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I assume that your bass playing improved because it sounds great on the records and stuff like that. And people praise you for your bass playing, as they do say Paul McCartney and the Beatles for being melodic and everything, and they act like different things i've read that like you came up with melodic bass lines did they not exist before that or is it just because recording was so i made primitive, primitive that they didn't I, you know. I studied yeah i studied classical music i okay. knew counterpoint okay. i knew melody okay. Okay, I, I knew i knew all the idioms of the symphonic oh. classical music bach and baroque yeah. and beethoven and mozart yeah. and i yeah. studied that in college yeah. Uh, and I had a famous uncle who, who conducted the Roger Wagner Chorale okay. in, in, in Los Angeles at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Mm-hmm. So he was famous. And so I, I was very attuned to melody. I was very attuned to making something musical. And that's what I always strive for was to make my lines melodic, make them where so you can, so it, it created a great counterpoint to whatever was happening in the melody, okay. not just don't, 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 you know, Okay. So uh, it, it really worked, and uh, I was very happy to be a bass player. Right. It was actually exciting because <laughs> bass players get to play lines. Right. You know? And uh, Terry Melcher was a really big fan of my bass playing. He loved to feature the bass on a lot of the big hit records like uh, Kicks. You know, Drake goes down, 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 down. And I go, boom, down, 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 down. And it was a counterpoint to Drake doing right. that line and kicks. And Hungry, he decided, I'm going to give the whole show to, to Fang on the bass. 
<laughs> so the whole song uh, revolves around that bass line. Dong, 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 you know, on Hungry. And uh, he, we did that. We recorded the bass three or four times, mm -hmm. a regular bass, an octave bass, a fuzz bass, and maybe one other. And then we mixed it and made a composite oh, wow. bass track. Okay. Okay. And that's why that bass sound on Hungry it's has like such a game. monstrous yeah. sound. <laughs> it, it, it's like a big locomotive just pushing that song along. Yeah. So anyway, Mar uh, Terry Melcher, our producer, who was Doris Day's son, right. uh, uh, he produced some of the Beach Boy stuff. He produced mm -hmm. the birds, mm -hmm. you know, Mr. Tambourine Man. And he was a very, he was, he was Columbia Records' golden boy. Right. But he helped us find our niche in the recording field. Oh, okay. And especially with me and Drake and Smitty, he would always work with us first, the three of us, the mm -hmm. rhythm section. Yeah. And then we, we would add Paul, and then we'd add Mark, you know, after mm -hmm. we had a good rhythm track going. And we didn't use click tracks back then. Mm. We, it, it, the song just had to have a steady, positive pocket. Mm. And once we, once we found that, and that was Paul's thing. Paul was Mr. Rhythm. He loved a, a great pocket, a great groove. Mm -hmm. So... Once we had that, then we would build on that song. And, you know, remember when we started out, we only had like uh, eight tracks yeah. to work with. That's why we had to ping pong all the bass tracks over to one track to open up tracks for background vocals and lead guitars. And, you know, we had drums. On, drums always took two tracks, yeah. you know, right and but, left. Yeah, but it made for a big, you know, condensed sound. That you know, when, really you, when you hear those tracks, they look yeah. so, they sound so fresh. Yeah. They sound so alive, mm -hmm. you know. I, it was analog tape, mm -hmm. but for some reason, uh, the engineers knew how to keep the sound crisp. We didn't lose much value by ping-ponging. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can lose a presence or quality by ping-ponging to another track. Right. But, but they, they knew how to do it and, and EQ it just mm -hmm. so that every, everything sounded good. So I was really thrilled to be in the band as a bass player because I got used on on uh, with my bass lines in a very special way. Yeah. And you had mentioned Paul McCartney. I loved his playing. Mm -hmm. He was also very melodic, and he used a pick. Right. I used a pick. And Playboy magazine, I'm going to make a reference to Playboy, uh, not for the women, but because <laughs> it, was, it, it featured articles on jazz musicians, mm -hmm. on entertainers. It was a great magazine in that aspect. Yeah. It did a lot of profiles on great players, great musicians. Well, one year it had a poll, a musician's poll, best trumpet player, best keyboard player, best vocalist, best bass player. Guess who, <laughs> guess who, uh, who was on the top of the list? You. <laughs> well, Paul McCartney. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he was number one. <laughs> I'm not bragging, okay. <laughs> but I was right under Paul. Paul was first. Definitely. Phil Fangvolk, number two in the Playboy boy, uh, Musicians. Have you, have you met Paul any time over all these years? Never. Wow. <laughs> and I wanna, I'd love to meet him. Yeah. And and I and and I know that he is aware of me and yeah. the Raiders well, because be, yeah. because when Drake Levin passed away, yeah. he he wrote in my guest book on my on my website. He says, Drake was a great guitar player. Uh, it's too bad we're losing too many of our good friends. You know, mm -hmm. he wrote a little entry and it was Paul McCartney, wow. you know. And so uh, that was really sweet of him. Yeah. And when John Lennon passed away, yeah. 
you know, when they went to his apartment and cleared everything out, they had the jukebox that he owned there. Yeah. He pulled, they pulled out a couple of Raiders songs. Yeah. In fact, I, I heard out. that on the, uh, the Beatles station on uh, Spotify or whatever it is. Uh, not Spotify, uh, Sirius XM. Uh, yeah, it was, they, it they was said step, John, stepping it, out or something was, like that. Yeah, what? they played Lennon. Here's a song from Lennon's Duke's Box, and then they played a Raiders song. And it's like, exactly. all right. <laughs> so they knew about us. The only Beatle I ever met was Ringo. Okay. Yeah. And, and he wasn't real friendly toward me because uh, it was at Disneyland. When I had a band there called... Oh, is that when you were doing... What was the, the name of the your Friendship group? Train. Friendship Train. That's it. Yeah, I wrote notes. The Friendship <laughs> Train. And, and we had put together a 20-minute Beatle medley. Oh, wow. I mean, we did like 30 Beatles songs in this medley. Hmm. And we had condensed it and, and made all the transitions so cool. It, it, it first started out as a 30-minute medley, but the head of A&R at Disneyland said, no, it can't be 30 minutes, Phil. <laughs> You got to trim it back. Yeah. So I trimmed it back, and it, it, it got such a good reception from the crowd there. Yeah. And the girls did some choreography, and we all took turns singing the leads, and the transitions were flawless. And so uh, I found out that Ringo Starr was at the front gate coming in. And so I ran to the front gate, yeah. and I see him coming in, <laughs> and I thought, oh, this would be great. You know, I had high hopes. That yeah. he was going to be, because, you know, Keith Allison, a former Raider, Keith, mm-hmm. lived with Ringo Starr and Barbara Bach. Mm. So he was close with Keith, and of course, Keith was a Raider, so he must have told him a little bit about the Raider history and the mm-hmm. experiences with that. And so I figured, I got a chance here. So he comes up, and he's with Barbara, he has a couple of kids with him, and I say, hey, Ringo. And he stops and looks. He looks a little scared, like, who's calling me, you know? <laughs> and I said, this Phil Fang Volk from Paul Revere and the Raiders. He says, oh, hi, nice to meet you. See you later. And he starts walking away. I said, wait, 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 Ringo. What? And I could tell he was getting tense. Mm-hmm. I said, I-, I have a band over here called The Friendship Train at Tomorrowland Terrace. And on the next set, we're going to do uh, a 20-minute Beatle medley. I'd like to have you here. He said, okay, thanks. That's great. Bye. He just was like, oh, well. well, gee whiz. Sorry to ruin your day, dude. <laughs> now, this was back in the 70s. Is that when you were in the Freedom 70, 73 to 78. Okay. So was, I probably saw you because <laughs> I lived in L.A. or L.A. area. Yeah. Disneyland a few times between 1973 and 76 when I was a kid. Yeah. But I wouldn't have known you were in the group. It was just listening to music at Disneyland. So yeah, well, there was three girls. There was three girls and me yeah. up front. Yeah, and they did. They did great moves and choreography, yeah. and they all sang solos. And this the stage in Tomorrowland Terrace. It comes up out of the ground. Yep. yep. You know, <laughs> right. and all of a sudden, wow! There's a rock band. You know. Right. And so you probably saw us. Yeah. Didn't know it. Hey, we crossed paths. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. So, um, did me and, so did me and Ringo. Yeah, you and Ringo. Well, I actually seen Ringo in concert. I almost got to, like, shake his hand, but, he, you know, he, he, he got right at the end of a concert, and they whisked him away, and I was, gonna, I was like, damn it, he was right there. You know, <laughs> anyway, but, yeah. um, you know oh, it's well. too bad. I, I kind of yeah. figured that maybe he didn't want to be noticed and recognized and cause a little flutter of activity yeah. at the park with it might have been the time 
the timing because in the seventies, you know, that's fresh after the Beatles and his solo, yeah. his biggest yeah. solo here career. So he's probably like a little standoffish. Yeah. I nowadays he might be a little more accommodating. So, and you know, oh, I thought I thought maybe know, one of these times I would have been selected to be uh, a bass player in a Ringo All Star band. Oh yeah, because he he pulled musicians from all different yeah. walks of life. Or oh, I remember that guy. I don't want him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he messed me up in uh, Disneyland. <laughs> he wouldn't let me go. He kept holding on to me. <laughs> I didn't want to hear his bad Let go. Let go of me. <laughs> but it wasn't that aggressive. Oh, I just oh, well. can't believe how cold he was. <laughs> um, let's see. One thing you mentioned, you mentioned you went to college to be a musician and you studied classical musician theory yeah. and everything like that. Yeah, right. But I read that you uh, were very good in athletics and track and things like that. And it's like That's did high, you ever school. Cons- high school. OK, but you, did you ever consider I never pursued that in college? Okay. Uh, okay. As it turns out, okay. um, when J- John F. Kennedy became president, he instituted a new physical education program requirement for all high school students they had to run a little race they had to do a standing broad jump they had to do some pull-ups they had to show where their physical fitness was and it was everybody in the whole school had to do it so guess what uh there was a standing broad jump Mm -hmm. we had to stand in one place and see how far we could jump forward Mm -hmm. and i jumped two feet farther than anybody else in the school wow (laughs) and and the word got back to the coach and he came up to me and said, hey, Phil, uh, you know how far you jumped on that standing broad jump? You, you jumped two feet more than anybody else. You got some good legs. I could probably use you in my track team. Hmm. I said, really? Yeah. So it turns out I was a good runner, too. Yeah. I was fast. And so uh, I was on the uh, a couple of relay teams, the mile relay and the 880-yard relay. And we broke both the state records in those two races, me and the other three guys. Okay. Uh, for Bora High School. And so we got gold medals. And <laughs> I went to the trophy case over there at Bora High School many, many years ago. Uh, you know, uh, when I went to like a class reunion, we went to the high school, we went to the gymnasium, we went to the football uh, arena and the bleachers and sat there and took a group shot. But we went into the uh, gymnasium where they have the trophy case. Yeah. And I'm looking at all these trophies, you know, they're stacked, you know, 10 deep. And I finally see 1963 for a high school Lions track team, state medal champions. We broke the state record and it had, you know, the, the four guys and my name was there. Wow. And I started to get choked up. Wow. I thought, gosh, darn it. They still have the, they still have our trophy. Wow. Yeah, we, we were, we were fast. And despite no, no, all that, you, you still had music as a greater passion then. Oh, absolutely. I played, right. I played, I played football in junior high school. Uh, and I, I loved the game of football, mm-hmm. but I love it more now to watch it. You know, we have the, uh, <laughs> we have the Raiders, we have the Raiders now. Right. It's, That's yeah. ironic. What a great combination. All in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> All the Raiders have ended up in Las Vegas, <laughs> including me. You, so I'm a Raider. There, you know, I was thinking I should write a song for them or something. I, I, I was going to say either do that or at least sing the national anthem at a Raiders game. You got it. <laughs> no, I don't do. I don't do patriotic exercises. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, I I was thinking, gosh. I love the Raiders, and they're doing. They did pretty good last year. They made the playoffs. Yeah. 
They got this brand new stadium they built for them, Allegiant yeah. Stadium. Mm-hmm. It's called the Death Star because <laughs> it has that look. Yeah. Just a big black saucer, you know, yeah. out there, you know. And uh, but it's a beautiful stadium, especially inside. And the Raiders are doing pretty good. And I got to figure out how to combine my Raider history with their Raider thing and mm. see if there's a some marriage there. I haven't a, figured I haven't figured it out yet. It could be a spokesman or something. <laughs> from one Raider to another, you know, and you could be like with the big football players and you know, <laughs> I, hopefully hopefully I'll get the idea. Maybe one night I'll wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh. Oh. Got it. <laughs> but haven't got it yet, but I like football. And I only cool. played football in junior high. Mm-hmm. Uh once once I was in high school, track was my thing. Mm-hmm. And I uh, became a state champion, and uh, the, the coach, coach, and that that was all because of John F. Kennedy starting that physical education program in my standing broad jump. <laughs> so the coach said he must have good legs. So we got to get him on the track. <laughs> coach Ed Troxel, great guy. Mm-hmm. What a great guy. A you know, you, 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 uh, you uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but oh, ahead, you know, there's certain teachers. Yeah. that you have in high school that are they, they create pivotal moments in your life yeah. or they create inspiration yeah. or motivation and, and you have a special connection to them yeah. all through That's life. You true. always think back to them. You always yep. refer back to like Coach, Coach Troxel, get me into track. I, I would have never gone into track, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but I did and I loved it. And, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, my choir teacher, Bert Berta, <laughs> And I was in choir, and we were going to do a musical that year when I was a senior. Mm-hmm. And guess what it was? Bye, I bye, bye. I was going to say bye, bye, Birdie, and I didn't. And, and guess what kind of character <laughs> is the lead them. character? It was, the lead character is a guy like Elvis, yeah, yeah. who's going to go into the military just like the real Elvis did. Yeah, yeah. And so, guess what role I played? Conrad Birdie. You know? <laughs> That was the guy's name, Conrad Birdie. And because I had musical experience and because I was influenced by Elvis Presley and I loved the way he moved, I did all those crazy hip shaking moves and yeah. leg wiggling stuff as Conrad. Yeah. And there was no, they didn't have a, you know, every character in Conrad Birdie, we had two casts, mm. cast A, cast B. And one night cast A did it, one night cast B did it. But they had no you know, understudy for me because I was the only cat in the school that could do an Elvis Presley impersonation and, and do the Conrad Birdie character. Right. So I, I felt very honored that they let me do it all five nights, you know? That's cool. Yeah. And, and <laughs> a great experience. Uh, so Bert Berta gave me that vote of confidence. He says, Phil, you're the right guy for this part. Mm-hmm. And I know you're going to be great, mm-hmm. you know? So it, it was a great experience playing Conrad. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to the Raiders, uh, a few more Raiders questions, just because, you know, like before I did, you know, except, except ugh, before I did a lot of research, I just assumed Mark Lindsay sang everything. But you also sang on some of the tracks, too. Was there any sort of agreement on how you sang or when you sang or was there friction on that or how did that work in those days? <laughs> Let's see. Was that word friction? Friction. There was friction. Okay. So friction. Okay. All right. Oh my God. Okay. Mark did not want to share the light limelight with anybody. Uh, okay. Mark, Mark was a little possessive of that, his role. Mm-hmm. And he got more and more possessive because we, we recorded a song called the great airplane strike. Right. 
which Mark Lindsay wrote, and it was a true story when the tr when the airplanes actually went on strike, and he wrote a song about trying to get to the airport and take a flight, and they couldn't get out because mm -hmm. all the planes were grounded. Mm -hmm. it, it was a clever song, mm -hmm. and it was a, it was a fun recording session. We had a great groove on it, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next song we recorded was my song that I wrote called In My Community. Mm. And Mark, I, I mean, uh, Terry Melcher, our producer, absolutely fell in love with the finished product. We brought a guy in uh, that he's very famous and he works with Brian Wilson a lot. His name was Van Dyke Parks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we were just playing the guitar, bass and drums uh, line. Mm -hmm. and uh, you'll find what you need, you know, in my community. We try hard to please in my community. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, you may even want to play that song. You can either play it off, uh, well, you can play it off the original album. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I think it's on Midnight Ride or, no, Spirit of 67, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, guess what? Terry Melcher loved it so much <laughs> that he said, I'm going to put this out as an A-side. Because, you know, everything there was a 45, you know, the record with the big hole. Right. That's it. That was your <laughs> single. And the, and the 45, A-side, B-side, and the radio stations were supposed to promote the A-side. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, Terry says to Paul, I want to put uh, out in my community as the A-side. <laughs> he said, what with with phil singing lead yeah. yeah sounds great he sounds great the band sounds great it's a hit 
He says, well, let me talk to Mark about that. Uh -oh. <laughs> so he talks to Mark, and of course, of course, Mark, you know, puts the screws to that. And so Paul and Mark insisted that Great Airplane Strike was the A-side. Mm -hmm. Now, Great Airplane Strike, Great Airplane, yeah, Great Airplane Strike. It was a good song. Yeah. It was a good pocket. It was a, it was kind of almost a novelty song because of the lyric. Right. You know? And uh, <clears throat> but I could have had an A-side. Hmm. And, uh, you know, other bands like the Beach Boys, they had different lead vocalists. Right. Mike Love would do a vocal. Carl Wilson would do a vocal. Al Jardine would do one. You know, they had several lead singers in that band. Mm -hmm. And because Terry Melcher had worked with the Beach Boys, he figured, what's the big deal? Yeah. Let's feature everybody in the band. You're all great singers. Right. You know, right. and Fang sings really good. And this is a great song. And that organ thing that Van Dyke did is a big hook. It's a huge hook, you know. Yeah. But Paul said, absolutely not. Wow. So he stuck up for Mark, mm -hmm. which I regret to this day because it <laughs> wouldn't have been interesting had I been uh, had a hit record as Paul Revere and the Raiders. Mm -hmm. That would have been looked pretty nice on my resume. And who knows where I could have gone from there. You know? Now, is that reason alone or are there many more factors why you and the two others left the group in 67 then? Well, I get asked that question all the time, and the, yeah, sim yeah. the simple answer is we wanted to get more of our own songs on the albums. Yeah, We wanted, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why Harpo left. Mm -hmm. He didn't get any songs on any Raider albums. He left. <laughs> oh, man. Let's, let's talk to Jamie. Uh, hey, Jamie. He used to play in my band. <laughs> Jamie. This is Phil Fang Volk, and I'm speaking to Mark Arnold on a podcast interview. Oh, you're doing an interview right now. Yeah, yeah. Say, hi to, say hi to Mark. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? Oh, doing well. How are you? <laughs> We're in the middle of the Fun Ideas podcast here. <laughs> Jamie and I have been trying to get a hold of each other, and we keep calling each other at the wrong time. But we'll, as soon as – can I call you back on this number? Well, no, no. Our interview is probably going to go for another 30, 40 minutes, right? Yeah. How long do you want to go, Mark? Um, well, you have to go eventually. No, no, uh, no. It's, it's your call. But, yeah, I usually go between an hour and an hour and a half. You know, yeah, so, let's I at mean, least do 90 minutes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we're having, we're having a good time uh, talking about the Raider legacy. So uh, I got I to gotta go right now, but I can call you either tonight or tomorrow. Let's talk, let's talk tomorrow. What time are you getting up these days? I get up late, around 9 o'clock. Uh, well, well, you know Charles Rosenay, right? Right. Who the guy that did the Beatle tours and stuff? I sure, yeah, still does. Yeah. And the yeah. autograph signing parties, right. uh, you know, festivals or conventions. Uh, this is a friend of Charles, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. His name is Mark Arnold. He lives in Eugene, Oregon, or Portland. Uh, Springfield, actually, but yeah, oh, Springfield was very close to Eugene. Yeah, yeah it's right next to Eugene, <laughs> Oregon. So we're on the same time uh, frame. We're Pacific time. And you it, guys do your thing, and, 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 and you go 90 minutes, two hours, whatever you want to do. I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'll talk to you tomorrow, man. Call me in the morning. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for the cameo. <laughs> yeah. That, ladies and gentlemen, was a great guy named Jamie Leasing who played <laughs> keyboards with Fang and the Gang, 
and we did some great gigs together. Is he and, on here? Is he on uh, here? Which we haven't no, really yet. Okay. <laughs> I don't think he's on any of those recordings. Okay. Okay. I don't think I ever got him in the studio. It was okay. all live. Well, we'll uh, talk about that soon. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, it was all. He did just gigs with me. Okay. Uh, good man, great keyboard player, real talent. And uh, there's other stories I could tell you, but I forgot them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so where were we? Well, leaving graders, you said you've been asked that a lot. And, you know, it sounded like, it, you know, mainly oh, you yeah, all kind of wanted to have your little space on the record. And Mark and Paul were kind of like, uh, no, this is our. our well, Mark, Mark dominated the mix on the albums by his songs and the things he wrote. Mm-hmm. And Paul kind of favored him because he was the teen idol, the, the front man. But I was getting so much coverage yeah. from the teen magazines. Right. And this is a fact of life. I got more teen magazine covers than Mark. Mm-hmm. Weren't and you also on Where the Action Is, too? So you were like all... We were on the national you know, TV show yeah, Where the Action yeah. Is with Dick Clark. Yeah, yeah. And I got, a lot, I got to sing a lot of solos on that. A lot. Yeah. And that was great. And Paul loved me. And I loved Paul. And... We all got along, and of course, but, I, but I knew on the back of your guitar. I had fang on the back of my bass. Yeah, so everybody what, knew who you were. <laughs> the minute I did that, it was during a Mark Lindsay song. I just and we we were kings of upstaging people. So so I put this. I went to the electric truck and I asked the electrician, "Can I have some of that black tape?" And uh, I had the white box bass, so black and white, it was perfect. So I wrote the letters in the tape, fang on the back of the bass. Right. And I, and because Paul wanted me to have a nickname and at first he wanted to call me Bucky. And I said, I don't like that. And how about bugs? I said, no, that name's already taken bugs bunny. Can't use that. Just let, let me work on it. So he was suggesting everybody had Paul was uncle Paul. Mark was Madman Marcus. Mm-hmm. Mike Smith was Smitty and Drake was the kid. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a nickname. So I got the electric tape, put Fang on the back of my base. Mark is singing some tune back there on, on where the action is. And we're taping. The cameras are rolling. And all of a sudden behind him, I flip my bass over. <laughs> I got that bass right over there. You want to see it? Oh, cool. Huh? <laughs> yeah, go good. You know, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll show you what it looked like. Yeah. <laughs> we're, very ca- we're, we're very casual here on the Fun Ideas podcast. You know, I even have my dogs here. So, you know, they usually pop, pop in for a cameo. Yeah, well, I had the dog barking outside, but I didn't let yeah, him in. Yeah. <laughs> he might create too much of a nuisance. So, anyway, I think it, okay. it was this bass. Okay. The Vox bass, you know, because we were sponsored by Vox, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so while while Mark was singing and being, you know, romantic and getting all the little teeny boppers <laughs> in love with him, uh-huh. I get behind him and I hop, uh-huh. hop, 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 hop. <laughs> and of course the cameras go off of Mark. This follow uh-huh. Fang, follow Fang. <laughs> and of course, right after that, I got fan mail, right. and the producer says, "Give Fang some more songs." Yeah, because we're getting mail for him, and and the kids like him, yeah. so uh, that was kind of cool, you know. Yeah, I kind of created my own opportunity there. Mark Mark <laughs> wasn't thrilled with it, <laughs> but he had yeah. to live with it. So I got more songs <clears throat> on the on the on the albums than any other guy in the band, except for Mark. He got the majority of the because yeah. once you know with the Beatles coming out and knowing that they were writers, songwriters, <clears throat> and their albums were all original tunes. Right. We we started to pick up on that, right? That trend. Now we started to write, 
And, you know, Mark is a good songwriter. I wrote songs. Drake wrote some songs. Smitty wrote some songs. And uh, we all had a chance, but Mark got the most of the songs. We wanted to get more songs on because we thought we were writing some good stuff that was more rock and roll, more heavy and rock because this is now the late 60s or the 66, 67. Things are getting a little more edgy. You know, we wanted, we wanted to compete in that arena. So we thought, and, and Drake was back in the band now because Harpo left because he didn't get any songs. So uh, uh, Drake and me and Smitty were writing good tunes, but we couldn't get them on the albums. And Mark Lindsay was writing some good tunes too. I won't take anything away from him, but some of his tunes were a little too bubblegum. Some were a little too teeny bop. <laughs> And we thought, oh, we can't go that route. Yeah, we're, we're going to miss this new phase of rock that's starting here. You know, the Sergeant Pepper phase and and all that stuff. We gotta we gotta be hip. We gotta be a little more relevant now. We can't be talking about bubblegum stuff. You know, the little girl in the fourth row. I mean, yeah, it's the the bubblegummers love that stuff, but it's not hip anymore. You know, so that became that became the issue. You know. Not only were we not getting enough of our own songs on the album, and I'm thankful that I got, did get a few songs on the albums, but also we didn't like the direction that the band was taking because Mark was kind of ruling the roost, and he was he was he was like he had Paul under control, so to speak, and he Paul kind of let him do what he he did, and eventually Mark became the producer. Terry Melcher left, right? And then Mark took over, so it was his gig, yeah. and. Uh, you can see what happened in the later years. Yes, they had hit records, but yeah. they never got to the status of the hits that we had with the original band with me, Drake, Smitty, Paul, and Mark. Right. Our stuff went into the top five. Right. Some songs became number two, number three, yeah. uh, and some were in the top 10, some were in the top 20. Yeah. But yeah. the other songs that they had later, Mr. Sun, Mr. Moon, Cinderella Sunshine, they were a little bit... A bubbly teeny bopper, <laughs> and they didn't get as high. They didn't right. go as high. You know, I think the only one that would compete would be the number one Indian Reservation. Yeah, Indian Reservation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that song. Yeah, fantastic production. Yeah. Yeah, I tip right. my hat to Mark for the production on that. Fantastic. Yeah. And I do that. I do that in my show. Okay. I do Indian Reservation. Why do I do that? You ask. You, well, you still respect the group that you were in. <laughs> no, the I don't know says, why. Well, why do you do that song? Yeah, why do you do that song? Because I have a special connection to that song. Oh, are you part? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not. Oh. I am I, not Indian. I'm not Native American. But I recorded it on my own album. Uh, an oh. album. Uh, I don't know if you got the album. It's called uh, Fang Reveres the Raiders. Okay, I've seen it. I, and I, I, and I yeah, yeah, I did 13 Raider hits, the biggest ones. And most of them were my, my time frame. Right. The only one outside of my time loop or frame was Indian Reservation. Mm -hmm. But but the, the version I did was so uh, uh, authentic. I, I brought in an Indian girl, a, a Native American girl, mm -hmm. and I said, I want you to do some chanting before, as, as, as the song is getting ready to start. I want you to do some moaning, some groaning. Please, we want to make this authentic. And so we started it with a, a little music just kind of swirling around, and we had a rain stick and everything. 
and and she's singing, you know, she's singing whatever, and and she's part Native American, and she had some lamentations, and then suddenly, suddenly, hear the organ,
You know, you want to see that album? Sure. Can you hold? I can hold. <laughs> hold on. Okay. Phil Fang Volk is out to get an album for me. <laughs> In the meantime, I can show off his latest album because we'll probably promote it pretty soon. Uh, Rocker uh, Fang and the Gang. This is his brand new album, and it's two discs. It's actually very good. So um, we'll talk about this soon, but you know, I would recommend highly getting this album too. So anyway. Hey, I got one of those. There I go. Hey, I made a sale already. <laughs> yeah, you know, the last time I did one of these podcasts when it when it aired, yeah, we got we got numerous sales because I sell these off my website. Oh, okay, yeah, dot uh, com. Yes. Okay, everybody, <laughs> class, repeat after me. Philfangvolk.com. <laughs> and it's right at the top of the page, and <clears throat> some trivia. What's that on my shoulder? Uh, it's a hand. Oh, whose question is whose hand is it? I don't know. <laughs> Come on. Look at his hair is right there too. Can't you tell by his hair right there? No. <laughs> I don't. Well, that is none other than my baby does the hanky panky. <laughs> Crystal blue persuasion. <laughs> Tommy James. <laughs> Tommy James. Oh, wow. Ooh, and this was at one of Charles Rosenay's. Oh, autograph okay. autograph festival conventions oh, okay. in New Jersey. We were we were very close. Tommy and I have a nice a nice friendship, and we went to see him when he played here. Got backstage, had a nice visit. Yeah. But that's Tommy James' hand. I didn't want to take the hand out. I could have done that right. in Photoshop, but I didn't. Yeah. But and, and this we're talking about the album. I mean, it has two nifty booklets with lots of color photographs. I'm very Let happy. Let me show the people where the booklets are. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. And there's a lot of text about each song. It's like well, a whole. You know what it is? A... It's my biography. Yeah. I've been wanting to write a book, but I'm so much better at liner notes with albums. That, <laughs> uh, you know, I even, I even discuss why I'm holding two little bunny rabbits in my hand. <laughs> Right, you Those little guys were getting ready to drown, and I pulled them out of the water, <laughs> and I gave them mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, mm-hmm. and they came back to life. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, I love animals. I was raised on a farm, but it does have a lot of uh, text. We talk about the, the history of the song, where we recorded the song, what's special about the song, and I have pictures of everybody that performed yeah. on these records, and so... Uh, as, as I mentioned before the show, you know, you showed Wider Shade of Pale there. And, you know, I had seen Gary Booker uh, with Ringo's All-Star Band. And then literally the day that I listened to that record, I found out he had passed away. And I was like, wow. Really? Yeah. My, my record or what? Uh, I listened to your CD. And then I read in the news later that day that he had uh. passed away. And it's like, wow, what timing is that? Coincidence. Feeling kind of seasick 
at first just go sleep Turned a wider shade of pale I'd like to see him again in concert or something, you know, because he was great with oh, Ringo, you know, uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, he, he was, his, his voice, uh, I, he didn't play the organ, did he? He played the keyboards, but he didn't play the Hammond organ, did he? He did with, with Ringo's tour. I don't know if he did when he did. Oh, well, he may have done it with but, Ringo. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I've always loved that song. I love mixing. Yeah. And this is some of the things you'll see on my CD. Yeah. 
mixing classical music elements with rock and roll elements. Mm -hmm. And it's especially noticeable on songs like All Over No Wonder. That is a complete full orchestration. Yeah. All over no wonder The feeling of love I was very blessed to have worked with an engineer that did a lot of Paul McCartney stuff. And that's Eric, the Norwegian Weinberg. Yeah. He was working in Hollywood at sound recorders. Mm -hmm. And uh, I rang the bell 
And uh, Eric comes on. He says, what's up, Phil? I said, well, I, I, I wanted to pick up our, our, our tapes from our recordings because we're getting signed with uh, RCA Victor. We need those. He says, okay, cool. Uh, I'm working with Paul McCartney right now. <laughs> we're, we're doing the Ram album. And, and, wow. and, and he said, come back in, uh, in about two hours, and I'll play you one of the things I just finished mixing. And it was Uncle Albert. Oh, wow. Hands across the water, water, hands <laughs> across the sky. And he played that for me, and I thought, my God, what a great mix. It is so alive. It, it has such good presence. And I was the first guy to hear it, you know. I don't know if Paul McCartney knows that, but, Paul, if you're there and you're listening, I got to hear that song, Uncle Albert. <laughs> is that what it was called? It's called Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey because it's oh, both parts. Yeah, the, okay, the hands yeah. across the water part is the Admiral Halsey part. The, oh, the okay. Uncle Albert part is we're so sorry, Uncle, Uncle Albert. Albert. We're yeah. so sorry if it caused you any pain. That part, yeah. <laughs> no, and, and, you know, uh, I always liked uh, thematic kind of songs that were kind of kind of like watching a movie, yeah. you know. And, and, you know, I did stuff like that in some of my recordings. You'll hear that on some of my stuff. But speaking but, of that song, that was like the earliest McCartney song I ever heard in my life as a little kid. Um, but I didn't know it was Paul McCartney. I didn't know the Beatles, really. You know, I was like four or five years old, and that song came out, and I just loved it. And it's like later, oh, yeah. it later was, when I became a true Beatles fan, I was like, wow, I'm glad that this guy was the guy who did it. You know? Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, <laughs> such a talented guy. And, you know, yeah. he plays lead guitar great. Right. You know, we both started out as guitar players and both had to go to bass mm-hmm. to fulfill a need in this rock band. Right. That's the same thing you did. That's the same thing I had to do mm-hmm. with the Raiders. Uh, yeah. But I'm glad. I, I love the bass. Once I really got behind it and got mm-hmm. behind the idea being a bass player, I, I loved being able to invent these lines, you know, mm-hmm. to help the song have that pocket. Right. One other question about the Raiders, and then we'll move back on to other things, uh, is were you there when they signed to Columbia Records? Or were you, was that, did they sign no. before? They were already with Columbia. Oh, okay. Now. But they hadn't, had, I, any, they hadn't had any hits yet. Right, right. Now, what's funny is, you know, the sing-along with Mitch Miller was – the head of uh, Columbia Records division, and he hated rock and roll, supposedly. He hated like, rock. Why was Paul Revere and the Raiders signed? You <laughs> know, then- here's, here's what's the ironic thing about that story. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Phil Fang Volk, for being my special guest. Part two of this interview will be uploaded next week. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode 158 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.